Section 22 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, a Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Nation and Empire, Part 2. In 1909, following Australia's example, Canada established a Department of External Affairs for the conduct and management of international or intercolonial negotiations so far as they may appertain to the Government of Canada. In introducing this measure, Sir Wilfrid declared, All governments have found it necessary to have a department whose only business will be to deal with relations with foreign countries. We have now reached a standard as a nation which necessitates the establishment of a Department of External Affairs. On Sir Robert Borden's accession to power, one of his first steps was to increase the importance of this department by giving it a minister, as well as a deputy, attaching the portfolio to the office of the Prime Minister. For other purposes, special envoys were sent, as when Mr. Fielding negotiated trade relations in France and in the United States, or Mr. Lemieux arranged a compromise with the government of Japan upon the immigration issue. In these cases, the British ambassador was nominally associated with the Canadian envoy, even this formal limitation was lacking in the case of the conventions effected with France, Germany, Holland, Belgium, and Italy in 1909 and 10 by negotiation with the consuls in Ottawa. Finally, in the Waterways Treaty with the United States, the international status of Canada was for the first time formally recognized in the provision that the decision to submit to arbitration matters other than those regarding boundary waters should be made on the one hand by the President and the Senate of the United States, and on the other by the Governor-General and Council, the Cabinet of the Dominion. At the close of this period, then, every phase of our foreign relations, so far as they concerned the United States, and an increasingly large share of our foreign relations with other powers, were under Canadian control. It remained true, however, that Canada had no voice in determining peace and war. In other words, it was with Britain's neighbors, rather than with Canada's neighbors, that any serious war was most likely to come. Diplomatic policy and the momentous issue of peace or war in Europe or Asia were determined by the British cabinet. In this field alone, equality was as yet to seek. The consistent upholder of Dominion autonomy contended that here, too, power and responsibility would come in the same measure as military and naval preparation and participation in British wars. Just as Canada secured a voice in her foreign commercial relations as soon as her trade interests and industrial development gave her commercial weight, so a share in the last word of diplomacy might be expected to come almost automatically as Dominion and Commonwealth built up military and naval forces, or took part in overseas wars. In this conception the Crown became the chief visible link of empire. Autonomists believed that His Majesty's government should remain a manifold power. We all claim to be His Majesty's government, declared Sir Wilfrid at the Conference of 1907. The government at Sydney was as much His Majesty's as the government at Westminster. The Canadian Privy Council was as much His Majesty's as the Privy Council of the United Kingdom. The tendency in the Dominions had been to magnify the powers of the King, who was equally their King, and to lessen the powers of the Parliament elected in the United Kingdom. In fact, the Crown became, if the metaphor is not too homely for such great affairs, a siphon which transferred power from His Majesty's government in the old land to His Majesty's governments in the Dominions. It was, however, not enough to have independent control. It was equally necessary, as the other half of the policy of cooperation, to provide means for securing united and effective action. These were provided in many forms. High commissioners and agents general became increasingly important as ambassadors to London. Departments of external affairs ensured more constant and systematic intercourse. Special conferences, such as the Naval Conference of 1909 in London, or the several exchanges of visits between the Australian and New Zealand ministers, kept the different states in touch with each other. 
but by far the most important agency was the colonial or imperial conference now a definitively established body in which dominions and kingdoms met on equal footing exchanged views and received new light on each other's problems thus the question of cooperation between the five nations became much like the problem which faces any allies such as those of the triple entente save that in the case of the british empire the alliance is not transitory and a common king gives a central rallying point nowhere has this free form of unity as unique in political annals as the british empire itself received clearer expression than in the words of edward blake in the british house of commons in nineteen hundred for many years i for my part have looked to conference to delegation to correspondence to negotiation to quasi-diplomatic methods subject always to the action of free parliaments here and elsewhere as the only feasible way of working the quasi-federal union between the empire and the sister nations of canada and australia a quarter of a century past i dreamed the dream of imperial parliamentary federation but many years ago i came to the conclusion that we had passed the turning that could lead to that terminus if ever indeed there was a practicable road we have too long and too extensively gone on the lines of separate action here and elsewhere to go back now never forget you have the lesson here to-day that the good will on which you depend is due to local freedom and would not survive its limitation but to many this trend of affairs was far from satisfactory they urged that canada should retrace her steps and take the turning that led to imperial parliamentary federation this agitation was carried on chiefly in private circles and through the press one organization after another british empire league pollock committee round table undertook earnest and devoted campaigns of education which if they did not attain precisely the end sought at least made towards clearer thinking and against passive colonialism occasionally the question was raised in parliament typical of such debates was that of march thirteenth nineteen o five when colonel now general sir sam hughes moved a resolution in favor of parliamentary federation mr borden refrained from either opposing or approving the motion but as did other members of his party made it a starting point for a speech in favor of imperial preference sir wilfrid laurier declared i do not think that it would be possible to find in any of the self-governing colonies any desire or any intention to part with any of the powers which they have at the present time at present we are proud to say and to believe that the relations of the british empire within all its parts are absolutely satisfactory it is not in accordance with the traditions of british history it is not in accordance with the traditions of the anglo-saxon race to make any change in their institutions until these institutions have been proved insufficient or defective in some way the British Empire today is composed of nations all bearing allegiance to the same sovereign. At the Conference of 1907 it was proposed that the Colonial Conference be changed into an Imperial Council. This suggestion met support from various quarters, but was blocked by Sir Wilfrid's firm opposition. He agreed heartily that the conference should be styled Imperial rather than Colonial, but, backed by all his colleagues, opposed any attempt to turn the conference into a council, with independent powers and an overwhelming representation from the United Kingdom in fact the conference was established more firmly than ever on a basis of equality the prime minister of the united kingdom rather than the colonial secretary became the special representative of his country and the conference was declared to be between his majesty's government and his governments of the self-governing dominions overseas at this conference perhaps more significant than anything that was said or done was the presence of general botha as the prime minister of the self-governing colony of the transvaal it was only five years since botha as commander-in-chief of the boers who had held out to the last had laid down his arms now he sat in the highest councils of the empire saying little studying his fellow ministers and the common problems and impressing all by his strong common sense and his frank loyalty 
His presence there was due to the courage and confidence which had been displayed by Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. One of the first steps taken by Campbell Bannerman's ministry in 1906 had been to grant the Transvaal full and immediate self-government without any intervening period of half-freedom. The policy had been a bold one. To a German empire framer it would have appeared incredible folly. The king had remonstrated against it. The leaders of the opposition had termed it dangerous and reckless. Mr. Kipling had hurled sonnets against it. But the government had stood firm, with the result here seen, and with still greater justification to follow. In this and the following conference General Botha manifested a special regard for his Canadian colleague, like himself a leader from a minority race. Undoubtedly Wilfrid Laurier's example, Canada's example, counted much in making clear to Louis Botha the path which led to loyal and lasting cooperation. The centralization policy found a new champion at the conference of 1911. Sir Joseph Ward, Mr. Seddon's successor as Prime Minister of New Zealand, submitted some months in advance a proposal for an Imperial Council of State Advisory to the British government, and then, having meantime been persuaded to go the whole road, made a speech in favour of a central parliament. The proposal met with still less favour than before. British, Australian, South African, Newfoundland, and Canadian Prime Ministers joined in pronouncing it unworkable and undesirable. The proposal seems to me to be absolutely impracticable, declared Sir Wilfrid Laurier. It is not a practical scheme. Our present system of responsible government has not broken down, agreed Premier Fisher of Australia. The creation of some body with centralized authority over the whole empire would be a step entirely antagonistic to the policy of Great Britain, which has been so successful in the past, and which has undoubtedly made the empire what it is today. It is the policy of decentralization which has made the empire, the power granted to its various peoples, to govern themselves, added Premier Botha of South Africa. Any scheme of representation, no matter what you may call it, Parliament or Council of the Overseas Dominions, must give them so very small a representation that it would be practically of no value, said Premier Morris of Newfoundland. Mr. Asquith summed up. We cannot, with the traditions and history of the British Empire behind us, either from the point of view of the United Kingdom or from the point of view of our self-governing dominions, assent for a moment to proposals which are so fatal to the very fundamental conditions on which our empire has been built up and carried on. It would impair, if not altogether destroy, the authority of the United Kingdom in such grave matters as the conduct of foreign policy, the conclusion of treaties, the maintenance of peace, or the declaration of war, and, indeed, all those relations with foreign powers, necessarily of the most delicate character, which are now in the hands of the imperial government, subject to its responsibility to the imperial parliament. That authority cannot be shared, and the coexistence side by side with the cabinet of the United Kingdom of this proposed body, it does not matter by what name you call it for the moment closed with the functions and the jurisdiction which Sir Joseph Ward proposed to invest it with, would, in our judgment, be absolutely fatal to our present system of responsible government. So far as the Dominions are concerned, this new machine could impose upon the Dominions by the voice of a body in which they would be in a standing minority, that is part of the case, in a small minority, indeed, a policy of which they might all disapprove, a policy which in most cases would involve expenditure, and an expenditure which would have to be met by the imposition on a dissentient community of taxation by its own government. Mr. Asquith's statement that authority cannot be shared has sometimes been taken to mean that the United Kingdom could not and would not admit the Dominions to a share in the control of foreign policy. As the context and later action showed, however, it was to sharing control with a new super-parliament that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, in common with the Prime Ministers of every Dominion except New Zealand, expressed his opposition. Later in the conference, a further, if far from final, step was taken towards sharing control with the Dominions. 
Upon Mr. Fisher's demand that the Dominions should be consulted in international agreements, such as the Declaration of London and the Conventions of the Hague Conference, it was agreed unanimously that, at further Hague Conferences and elsewhere, when time and subject matter permitted, this would be done. Sir Wilfrid Laurier agreed with this proposal, though stating his view that in such negotiations the United Kingdom should be given a free hand. Some greater share in foreign policy, most nationalists and imperialists alike agreed, the Dominions must possess. The real question was whether they should seek it through a central body in which they would have a minority representation, and whose functions it was impossible to define without serious infringement of the existing powers of the dominions, or whether they were to secure it along the line so long pursued of independence in what was overwhelmingly the prime concern of each separate state, plus cooperation in what was distinctly of common interest. Hardly had preferential trade as a mooted topic receded into the background when the question of Canada's share in the defense of the empire came to the front and took on a new urgency and a new interest. The forces of Canada for land defense had been made much more effective since the twentieth century began. The permanent militia had been largely increased. Engineer, medical, army service, and ordnance corps had been organized or extended. Rifle associations and cadet corps had been encouraged. New artillery armament had been provided. Reserves of ammunition and equipment had been built up, a central training camp had been established, the period and discipline of the annual drill had been increased, the administration had been thoroughly reorganized. In 1911 over six times as much was spent upon the militia as in 1896. Though the service was still very far from ideal efficiency, there was no question that it had been greatly improved. In Canada, as in the other dominions, the problem of bringing the military forces into relation with the forces of other parts of the empire was solved without any sacrifice of the principle of self-government in command or administration. After 1902, little was heard of the proposal to give the British War Office control over a section of the troops of each dominion. Matters moved rather in the direction of cooperative action. In 1907, it was arranged that each of the larger dominions should organize a general staff to act in close touch and to exchange officers with the newly reorganized imperial general staff. It followed that equipment and administration became largely uniform. In 1909, and again in 1911, further steps were taken to secure effective cooperation between the general staffs. Naval defense proved a harder problem to solve. A beginning was made. The fishery cruiser service was extended. In 1905, the Dominion took over the garrisons at the naval bases of Halifax and Esquimalt. The Minister of Marine, Mr. Prefontaine, took some steps toward the organization of a naval reserve, but with his death in 1905, the movement ceased. The belief in Britain's unquestioned supremacy, a reluctance to enter the vortex of European militarism, the survival of passive colonialism, kept the vast majority of Canadians indifferent. And, though a persistent minority of enthusiasts called on the country to awake, the unwillingness of the British authorities to sanction Dominion action along national lines blocked the most promising path. By much effort, all these self-governing colonies except Canada had been induced to send annual checks to the Admiralty. But the total amount was negligible, and no permanent results had been achieved. After fifteen years of contribution, not a single Australian had been trained as a sailor. At last, opinion in the Commonwealth took decided shape and demanded immediate national action, demanded the creation of a Royal Australian Navy. Heretofore, Canada had blazed the trail that led from colonialism to nationhood. Now Australia took the lead. The reasons were clear. Canada's chief neighbor was the United States, on the whole not a militarist country, and there was little fear of military aggression. But commercial intercourse with this neighbor, along a frontier of 3,000 miles, was close and constant, making it necessary for Canada to take into her own hands the control of commercial relations. 
Australia had no such overshadowing commercial relations with any power, but had neighbors in the Pacific, the colonies of aggressive European states, first France and later Germany, and the teeming and awakening powers of Asia, which gave urgency to the question of defense. A commonwealth which ruled a dependency of its own in Papua, and shared dominion of the world's second greatest island with imperial Germany, nowhere except in this anomalous precedent-defying British Empire could anyone have dreamt of the colony of a colony, could not long remain indifferent to naval defense. For twenty years discussion of the issue had gone on in Australia, clarifying and precipitating opinion. It was no wonder that Canada, which tried to concentrate the same discussion into four or five years, years of great economic pressure, proved more confused in opinion and less unanimous in action. At the conference of 1907, the Admiralty modified its former policy and suggested that instead of a money contribution, any Dominion might provide for local service in the Imperial squadrons the smaller vessels that are useful for defense against possible raids or for cooperation with a squadron. The Prime Minister of Australia, Mr. Deacon, welcomed the proposal as a step forward, but on his return to Australia, it was still found impossible to reconcile the national aspirations of the Commonwealth and the desire of the Admiralty to control all ships, however provided, and no definite action followed. Canada, for the present, remained content, having extended the fishery service and garrisoned with her own troops Halifax and Esquimalt. Both parties in Canada agreed in giving no attention to the question. During the general elections which followed shortly after the conference of 1907, neither Sir Wilfrid Laurier nor Mr. Borden said one word about naval defense. Nothing but a dramatic crisis would rouse the people to give the support necessary to enable either leader to take a decided stand. The Kaiser provided the crisis. During 1908 and 1909, cries of alarm over the growth of the German navy awoke the United Kingdom and found echoes in Canada. It appeared that Britain's margin of safety was being dangerously lessened, that the mistress of the seas had been challenged. The British House of Commons voted eight additional dreadnoughts, and the Admiralty continued to withdraw ships from the ends of the earth and to concentrate the fleet in the North Sea. Since the 80s, international affairs had shown increasing tension. In Europe, the struggle for national freedom, which marked the previous era, had in many cases been perverted into an endeavor to impose one nation's will upon another. Not only did France cherish the memory of Alsace-Lorraine, not only did Italy dream of her lost provinces, not only did the Balkan states plot to complete the half-done task of driving out the Turk, but the German-Austrians sought to dominate the Magyar and the Magyar the Slav, while Italy swelled with visions of the eastern Mediterranean once more a Roman lake, and Pan-German and Pan-Slav drew and redrew the map of Europe to their liking. End of Nation and Empire, Part 2